Welcome to the Higher Ed Jobs Podcast. I'm Andy Hibble, the Chief Operating Officer and one of the co-founders of Higher Ed Jobs. And I'm Kelly Sherwin, the Director of Editorial Strategy. Today, we're going to discuss the topic of balancing work and life in the summer. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Sachs, who has an impressive background in higher education that includes a twice award-winning classroom teacher at the University of Michigan and at Madonna University, as well as an esteemed dean at numerous institutions throughout the years, as well as holding four academic vice presidencies. So Richard, I hope you don't mind me saying that I think you may have a little experience in working through summers in academia. Right. (laughs) Thanks for being with us, Richard. Would you share with our listeners what your recipe for a successful summer is? I'm delighted to be here and to discuss it. Generally, the early years of my career in the 80s and 90s, I would teach about 48 or 50 weeks out of the year. Because even when I became a dean, it was a small school and it only gave me a half load release. I was teaching two courses instead of four each term. And I would teach the summer term too and have like three weeks off in August. More recently, as I've had no teaching load whatsoever as an academic vice president, what you would define as my summer would be longer. But essentially what I do to re-energize and recharge, first of all, I always have a reading list. Damn it, I'm a lit prof. I read all the time. And I generally am reading one or two things that I might be teaching. I'm reading a third thing that either deals with Herman Melville, my doctoral dissertation, or something in American Indian Studies which is where most of my postdoctoral scholarship and teaching has been. And then I also have some dirty pleasure readings. Uh, It's still PG-13, but there's Vivian Chen, uh, C-H-I-E-N. She's from Cleveland, and she grew up beyond the airport in a strip mall at her parents' Chinese restaurant. And she writes murder mysteries from the point of view of a 30-year-old single Chinese-American woman whose family owns a Chinese restaurant in a strip mall by the airport in Cleveland. So all the local things are mentioned, and it deals with Chinese cooking and interactions between Chinese Americans and Euro-Americans, which I love. She's got like eight the dim sum mysteries, and so that's my dirty pleasures reading. So I always have a reading list, and I, I love doing that. Back in the day in the 80s and 90s, when I would vacation with my first wife and younger kids in New England, I would do what educated people did, and that is buy the New York Times on Sunday and read it for the rest of the week. I don't do that anymore during the summer. But again, the three things I'd say is reading list. Number two, recharge with my adult children. I have adult sons in San Francisco and Denver, two of my favorite cities in the world. I have an adult daughter who's a doctor in Cincinnati. And then I have two younger children. One is at Kent State and one will be a senior in high school this fall. So I try to recharge with the adult children. You know, that means visits to San Francisco, Denver, Cincinnati. And then the third area for me, because I've been at smaller schools, is a little bit of scholarly work. I know true Division I scholars are doing research all the time. But those of us at smaller schools, at Compass schools, at community colleges, our chance to write articles and conference papers is generally the summer. So again, those three things are reading list, recharge with adult children, scholarly work. It's going to differ for every faculty member, but if I'm able to do those three things, I feel totally recharged for the fall. I have to admit that I've been super excited for this episode. I hear summertime and I have very, very big expectations for summertime. And I have to tell you for probably the least the past couple days, I've been having the song Summertime Blues go through my head. 
when you listen to summertime blues, you kind of look at it and you're like, of course I know that song. But I started listening to it. I can tell you a number of different versions of the song. I mean, you have probably the most recent I know of, which is Rush in the early 2000s did a version of Summertime Blues. You have Alan Jackson in the 90s who had a number one country hit with Summertime Blues. Roger Daltrey and The Who used to play it on stage. And Roger Daltrey used to introduce it as the only song we do from another composer. So you bet your life it's good. And you, you quickly realize like, all these people have done summertime blues and you listen to the song and the chorus is there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. And I have to dissent here. There is a cure for the summertime blues, but before we do it, we all know of the Spotify playlist we have for the podcast. And I want you guys to guess whose version of summertime blues. Do you think I like the best? The who? Sorry, sorry. I'm a classic rock guy. That's where I would have gone for you. You have to give me the options again because you're attacking the wrong person. I don't even know what the summertime blues is. <laughs> no, like I'm so no young, Andy. I don't summertime. know. So. I'm, so, I'm sorry, but Journey does not have a version of summertime blues. <laughs> Are you sure? I'm, I'm uh, looking at it I, I, now. I don't Go know. ahead. Maybe, maybe they do. I'm going to tell you. My favorite version, I'm going to go really specific with this, is Bruce Springsteen's version oh. of summertime blues. Oh. Mike, how did you not know? So let's, let's talk about Bruce's famous version of this. It's from 1978. It is one of the quintessential live recordings of Bruce because it was also broadcast in Cleveland on August 9th, 1978. And he opened the show with Summertime Blues. And I, I will challenge you, listen to as many versions as you want and then listen to Bruce's. And it's clearly, clearly better. I would say Bruce opening the show is on the verge of pandemonium from actually singing this song. So I really, really want to challenge you to, to listen to that song. So I'm adding that to the playlist as we start right off the bat. And we're telling you, don't believe it's lyrics. It's the first song we're putting on the playlist where we want to come out of this podcast episode saying, no, I think I can beat the summertime blues. I thought I knew everything that Bruce Springsteen ever did. I was not aware that he did that. I saw him on his first and second national tours, uh, The Wild, The Innocent, and The East Street Shuffle, and Greetings from Asbury Park. The other thing I would recommend, if you really like Bruce Springsteen, his original place to play was called The Stone Pony in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and it is still open, and he still plays there every summer. And it's always unannounced, because otherwise it would be crazy. A dear friend of mine, I went to Haverford College undergrad, a Bryn Mawr friend of mine owns an oceanfront condo in Asbury Park. And I'll get a text from Antonia saying, Bruce is going to be at the Stone Pony tonight. Can you come 500 miles to New Jersey? I'm going kind of thing. But but I, it's definitely worth it. Go to the Stone Pony, even if Bruce isn't there. Maybe I should put out there, maybe we should talk to Monica and see if we can get a a remote episode of the podcast recorded at the Stone Pony. Maybe maybe that's on the, yeah. the podcast bucket list of, of things that we can do. So And they would be into it because they're very entrepreneurial. There's an they have an outside deck now and they try to do summer things to bring in more people. So I think they would be open to that. If I could riff a little bit on summertime blues, I can tell you why professors have them. Because we are so tied to deadlines. We have to teach class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Tuesday, Thursday. We have to write articles. We have to write a grant. What often happens during the summer is when you have reduced or no teaching load, 
And then it's like, oh, I'm going to finish this book proposal or whatever. That's when I have seen my professors get the summertime blues because they're not being pushed every day to get something done. Suddenly, they're not getting enough progress on their research project or whatever large thing they're working on. And that's when the blues set in. So how do you help your faculty members overcome that feeling of not being pushed and having the blues? I think you always try to break things down and say, don't worry about the whole. What are you trying to do? You know, how are you doing with this chapter? How are you doing with this article? Or if I find some travel funds for you, could you go to the New Bedford Whaling Museum in New Bedford, Mass? Would that help? Or I try to facilitate things and break things down because how do people do things? When any of my five children between the age of 17 and 35 say, Dad, what, what do you want for your birthday? I always say world peace because I don't want them to spend money on me. But you see how I have not enfranchised them at all? They can't provide world peace for me. That is the problem that faculty members have. I'm depressed. I've got all these things. And it's like, hey, I can't help you with your relationship. That is your business. And it's really outside of my leadership role of you. But what I can help you with is don't stress over the fact that whatever it is, you've been assigned a remedial course this fall. And now you've never taught it before. And you're bummed about that because you want to be teaching honor students instead. And actually, we have very few remedial courses in the country because we've gone into co-requisite remediation for the last couple of decades, as you guys would know at higheredjobs.com. But again, I think stipulating what my role is, sometimes I become friends with people. I have lifelong friends. Uh, my IT director, who I worked with for seven years in Southern Ohio, died a couple of weeks ago. I went to his funeral. He suffered with cancer for three years that started right as he retired. But he was wonderful. He was good at delineating roles. These are things I can do. These are things I can't do. I would love to have world peace, but I can't deliver on that. What you can deliver on, though, is study Canvas better, populate your Canvas site or your Blackboard site better during the summer, or connect with IT support people, or we've got this new junior faculty member. Can you help mentor her? my gosh, you've been teaching American Lit for 25 years and she's straight out of grad school. You know, I would love to try to create a kind of mentorship relationship for you. And then suddenly it's generally mid-range and older faculty who get depressed because the younger faculty are just trying to get tenure. You know, they're trying to raise their kids. They're trying to do all these things. They don't have time to start to sit and reflect. And reflection is a huge part of higher ed. I mean, we don't just study things I study things, I'm writing the article, and then I sit back and reflect. And maybe I need to sit on it for a couple days and then come back to it. And then I can write so much better for having let it percolate. It's the same reason why pasta is better the second and third day, because, because the spices and everything have mixed together in the refrigerator. You know, that leftover pasta is awfully good. And your writing can be that way too. Sometimes you can't push things. And again, we all have to learn that people write differently. Hemingway wrote, standing up at a lectern in a nightshirt. There's no way I could write like that, you know, but he figured out how to do it and how to do it well. Well, first of all, we, we tried to avoid any food references during the podcast because we might need to stop for a snack. Okay. Um, so we're just, we just need to be careful there. Um, 
But I'm going to actually cite with attribution the wisest person I know, which is my wife, Elizabeth. We're in the process of buying a house, but whether it's buying a house, buying a car, looking at a life event, she says, you know, there's always like five must-haves that you have to have going into the process. And if you're lucky, you get three of them. Most likely you'll get two. And if you're really lucky, you get four, but you never get all five. If you want to look at the cause of the summertime blues, it's looking at those five things that you have to do. And if you look at the summer, you're now three quarters of the way through the summer and you've only done 10% of them. You're like, oh my gosh, I did not accomplish the summer what I need to do. You frantically go the last quarter trying to do 90% of what you wanted to do. And you've just lost what the whole idea of what your summer should be. And going back to your first response to the question of how do you work your summers? I thought what was genius about that is you gave broader categories of what things you want to do with kind of mixing and matching parts underneath those broad categories. So maybe you have a reading list. I think you referred to as dirty pleasures of category of readings that you have. And with that category, it didn't seem like here's the list of six books that I want to read under that category. Here's a handful of them. And let me see what I get through. That's great if you have a lot of time over the summer. But from a faculty perspective, let's say you still are teaching a full or even a significant load throughout the summer, because some faculty do. What's your ways for that faculty member that you would advise to prepare and hopefully be refreshed for fall and getting some of the cool down period that summer allows for people to do? I think as an American studies person who loved downhill skiing for decades until my knees gave out and still enjoys, you know, hiking in the woods and being outside. The one thing I've learned is you have to live with the weather that you have and the weather has gotten more and more extreme and apparently will continue to do so. So one thing I really enjoy doing, one of the things I can do because I I was always a basketball player and a skier. And now after eight knee surgeries, I am much less active than I used to be. But one of the things that's huge for me during the summer is I get to swim laps outside instead of swimming laps inside. And I see that as a great gift. Whatever the weather is, whether it's freezing rain, which is the worst because you can't do anything in it, it's very dangerous, or heavy snow or heavy rain and thunderstorms in the summer, I just try to savor whatever it is and say, my gosh, I'm in Durango, Colorado, and the forecast just said 8 to 10 inches in town, 15 to 20 above 8,000 feet, and the town's at 6,500 feet. And the base of the ski area is at 9,200 feet. So the base is going to get over 20 inches. I mean, that excites me to this day. And I'll drive my kids out there and just sit in the lodge and just enjoy the vibe of getting pounded with snow. (laughs) And the fact that you've got these crazy Coloradoans who are just loving the heck out of it. So whatever it is, I try to just appreciate like where I am and what I'm doing. I've lived much of my life and I'm in suburban Cleveland now, an amazing town, lots of different cultures, great live music in small venues. There's a lot of great benefits. The other thing is people have moved away from the Rust Belt cities. And I learned that living in Brooklyn for five months last year. It's so easy to get in and out of 
the restaurant, the grocery store, the music venue, instead of dealing with the fact that there's, you know, 8.8 million people in New York City and they're all trying to move at five o'clock. I just think you really have to live in the moment. I'm a collie person, not a Labrador person, but I do use the term happy as a Labrador, which are kind of crazy dogs. Both my ex-wives love Labradors and they are crazy happy all the time. Collies are more like people. They're moody at times, you know, and then they get better. And that's more my type. When I get up at two in the morning to go to the bathroom, both the Labradors would jump up, come over, watch me as I did my business. And then two minutes after I would get back in bed, I would feel the heat of their breath and they'd be right at the side of the bed waiting for me to do something else at two in the morning. And then they would figure out it's time to go to bed. Do you know what a collie does when you get up at two in the morning to go to the bathroom? Raises his head, thinks, oh, Richard's just going to the bathroom, puts his head back down. But I love using the term happy as a Labrador because we have an opportunity every day. We have so much choice, what we want to eat, where we want to go. Uh, For faculty members, where we want to grade papers. Do I want to grade these in the office? Do I want to bring them home? We have a fair amount of individual choice. You have to savor that and realize a lot of jobs, a lot of people don't have that. Well, I have a boxer puppy and I'm not going to say I'm happy as a boxer because people will think that I am crazy. I'm a lunatic because, right. yeah. my. <laughs> but I, I love the fact that you brought in some uh, analogies using some dogs. You've touched on this a little bit when we were talking about recharging the summer with faculty, but in your numerous leadership roles over the years, what ways have you figured out or do you have new ideas that you would suggest that you can best support your staff and faculty in the summer months? Are there creative ways? You know, obviously a lot of things have changed since COVID. There's remote work. There's ways that people can still keep engaged in the summer months, but also not be burnt out. Do you have any ideas on that? For me, and I've shared this with faculty, I don't know how much they listen to it. Um, (laughs) For me, reducing clutter is important because, you know, even though I have so many electronic documents, I like having print documents as well. And going through things like I was at a Peace, Justice, and Human Rights graduating seniors reception the other night. And one of my students from last fall said, oh, do you still have my 20-page research paper with the great notes on it? I said, yeah, but it's in a box in my office. You know, I'll have to get to it. So things like that you can do. For me, rearranging books and documents I don't know if you guys know um, High Fidelity, the movie with John Cusack in it. Yeah. He owns a record store in Chicago. But when he breaks up with girlfriends, he often changes his organizational system. He's going to do it alphabetically or he's going to do it by the record label or whatever else. And that, for me, is very worthwhile. I like to have an area of my bookshelf that are books I'm going to teach or possibly guest lecture in. Another part that's also readily accessible, articles I might be writing for newspapers or for scholarly publication or things like that. I think the other thing is, it has always been an administrative and an institutional prerogative to avoid summer melt. I don't know if you guys know that book from about seven years ago and the concept that 20% of the students who are admitted in the spring never show up in the fall they melt. And the one thing we've learned is with poor students and first-generation students, they need support during the summer because they've already left high school or community college and they haven't yet started. And then they get an initial bill and their financial aid hasn't been backfilled. And they're like, I can't handle that. And they just don't show up. 
So one of the things I've done, and this is a long answer to a short question about suggestions for faculty in terms of utilizing their summer well, is I've actually used institutional funds to put faculty members on the road. When I was in Southern Ohio and we got 80% of our students from the state of Ohio, Ohio is essentially like a clock. The wonderful thing about it is Columbus is right in the middle and that's the capital. That's where ODHE, Ohio Department of Higher Ed and other things are. You're not three hours from anywhere in Ohio if you're in Columbus. We were in extreme southeastern Appalachian, Ohio. So we created admit dates and booked generally holiday and conference rooms in the Cleveland area, the Toledo area, and the Cincinnati area so that we were dealing with the other three quadrants. And I used institutional funds to put faculty members on the road and meet with students. Of course, we had financial aid, admissions, housing people at those things to try to answer any possible question. But I also wanted some faculty members saying, you know what, you're going to be in comp one or you're going to be in comp two. You could start doing this to prepare for that course or even just having faculty members ready to talk to concerned students and their parents. And still, you know, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, community college, I had faculty members saying it's not my purpose to recruit or even retain students. It's just to teach them. You know, it's the other people that do that. And it's like, no, we are all part of it. We are all part of creating an inclusive community and supporting people. Here's a quick story that I heard, which I think is relevant to this. In the 60s, when I was an elementary school student, every time there was a major NASA flight, they would wheel in a TV set and we would watch it. And I would often see Vice President Hubert Humphrey get out of a limousine and get into the VIP area and watch the liftoff. So I hear a story from a consultant about 10 years ago. I thought it was fascinating. On one of those visits to Cape Canaveral, Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, sees a middle-aged man in a white lab coat coming toward him. And Hubert Humphrey stops him and says, what do you do here? You know, he's the vice president. He's surrounded by all these people, but he just wants to ask, you know, a random employee at NASA in Florida, what do you do here? What's your purpose? And the guy says, my purpose, and it's like 1965 or so, My purpose is to get a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Humphrey pushed the guy further and goes, yeah, but what do you do here? The guy was a janitor, but it was in his head that he is part of the team. Wow, that is engagement, isn't it? And that's what I need from faculty members in terms of recruiting, retaining, and graduating students. It's everybody's purpose but it's especially the classroom teacher because that's the essence of what the student is doing. You cannot just say, that's for the student services people. I'm in academic affairs, not student affairs. That excuse doesn't work anymore. And again, that is something that will fill up your summer. And I think it gives faculty members purpose. And I am certainly not a psychological expert, but I will say, I think when people have a sense of purpose, I don't think they get as depressed as often because they have a focus to their lives and a focus to their professional lives and it makes sense to them. Perfecting a culture in that same idea, a phrase I frequently use and like is may the hand recognize the value of each finger. The whole hand has to work together in order to be able to function at its optimal best. And if each finger just sees themselves as a silo, it doesn't quite work so well together that way. 
That juxtaposes our final question. According to the 2022 CUPA HR survey, which is the Professional Association for Human Resources for Colleges and Universities, approximately two-thirds of full-time higher ed employees work more hours each week than was considered full-time. Notably, 10% of employees work 16 or more hours of additional time per week. What are your thoughts on this? Is this just a new reality or is this burning the candle at both ends? And is that going to lead to burnout at this point? That's clearly a danger. And that's something that we have to worry about. You know, 20 or 25 years ago, I would have said the mental health of my employees is not a primary concern. It is fully a primary concern now, both for my faculty and students and academic support staffs. I think what happens changes over time as life changes and life calibrates somewhat. But there's an old truism that if you love what you do, then you'll never work a day in your life. For me, I've often had people evenings and weekends and, you know, when I'm on a plane flight and somebody notices that I'm reading a really advanced scholarly work, they're like, don't you ever take any time off? And I'm like, this is what fascinates me. Harvard has an IES, the Institute of Educational Studies that prepares people for presidencies and things like that. And I heard a gentleman from that Harvard Center at a conference probably 20 years ago, he said, being a faculty member is not their job, it's their identity. And that is totally true. My personal email is litprofdean95 at gmail.com because I'm a literature professor who first became a dean in 1995. So to me, litprofdean95 at gmail.com is the most natural and obvious personal email address for me to have. But if it's three in the morning and I think there's an incorrect visa billing, and I'm talking to somebody around the world, that email is almost impossible to communicate. So maybe that wasn't such a good idea. I guess my point is I'm willing to work harder and longer hours than most of the people who report to me. But one of the aspects of academic life is except to make sure you're teaching your classes when you're teaching them and you're in office hours, when you have office hours, even at teaching-centered institutions, your teaching hours and office hours are going to hopefully max out at 15 or 20. And then how are you spending the other 20 to 30 hours of prep time and work time that's expected? And yes, yeah, sometimes it's going to go, you're going to have 60 and 70 hour weeks. In terms of flexibility for the summer, I've been at places that move to a four day week. Yeah, that kind of makes sense for faculty because things are quiet. But when students visit campuses, it almost always happens during the summer, and it's almost always wrapped around a weekend. So you don't want to be closed on a Monday or a Friday. I've argued unsuccessfully, if we have to close one day a week for the summer months, let's make it Wednesday so that people can still come from a thousand miles away and use the weekend and see us on a Friday. I've had to mediate some horrible arguments when we've gone to a four-day week, but oh shoot, admissions has to be here. And some people in athletics, they have to be here. And then suddenly people would show up and there'd be one admissions officer and one person in the gym and nobody else would be on campus for them to talk to. That doesn't make sense if you're worried about enrollment. Realize we have the summer months off because of a 19th century agrarian calendar. And what often happens is as I broker deals with Michigan Bell, with Ameritech, with other corporations that want 
degree completion programs in-house and they have enough students for us to put it there, they don't want the summer off. They want five, 10-week terms. All the business people, they're like, no, quickest way out. I've created an MBA program with healthcare emphasis for university hospitals in Cleveland, 23,000 employees, and they could take an MBA with specific healthcare emphasis. But again, uh, UH says we want five, 10-week terms. Give them a week off at July 4th, a week off at Christmas, and that's it. And that way, oh my gosh, it's taken them two years or four years to fulfill this MBA rather than forever. So Richard, you've spent the summer rejuvenating yourself and getting ready for the fall. What's your biggest treasure about coming back to campus and how does it make a difference in your life? So again, isn't it a gift what we're doing? I mean, I've been able to, between 1984 and 2004, I taught Melville's Moby Dick 17 of the 20 fall terms. What a wonderful adventure that was to go whaling with my students. I mean, it's an, it's an adventure story. It's a tragedy. It's a symphonic elegy to America. And it's got some huge, big thought ideas in it. And for 20 years, 17 of those 20 years, I taught students a gen ed upper level lit class in it. And I continue to get emails 25 years later from students. Thank you, Richard. That was fantastic. For our listeners out there, I want to remind you, we want to hear what you think. What brings passion to you? What do you do during the summer? How do you refuel yourself to get ready for the fall? Please email us at podcast at higheredjobs.com or tweet us at higheredjobs. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. It's been a pleasure having you share your wisdom about how to beat the summertime blues. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.